The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. The show today is based on a talk I gave at this year's IONS conference, with a bit more of my history and the effects my childhood NDE had on the balance of my life. This week happens to contain both my birthday and Thanksgiving, so please forgive me for indulging some personal nostalgia and Thanksgiving for the blessings I received. In 1949, just about the time I drowned into my own NDE at seven years old, Joseph Campbell published the first edition of his landmark book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Campbell was drawing on what he'd learned from Mircea Eliada, a Romanian historian of religion, fiction, a writer, a philosopher, and professor at the University of Chicago. For Campbell, all myths told what he called the one great story of mankind. Campbell was a humanist, not a mystic. Some 40 years before I graduated from Columbia University, Campbell graduated from the same school with a doctorate in medieval literature. He argued that myths are public dreams. Dreams are private myths. Campbell studied myths from around the world and came to the startling conclusion that all the stories were the same story, that no matter what language they were told in, all seemed to be speaking the same intrinsic truth. At their heart, all these stories were the same. Here's how he described the root of them all. Quote, a hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. From all we know today, Campbell's word hero in his definition of the monomyth could be swapped for near-death experiencer without a hair's width of distance between the two. Well, listen to this. An NDEer ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The NDEer comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. I think you see what I mean. But does this mean that all NDEers are heroes? I think we'd agree that that depends, most importantly, on what he or she does with the story. In other words, it depends on how the story ends. It depends on whether that NDEer goes, does go on to benefit other people. and It's in that part of the story where NDEer heroics can arise. Several years ago, I began to relate Campbell's definition to my own NDE to see what I'd done with the memory of my own NDE how it had affected the psychology of where I was uh, when I was uh, seven years old with a seven-year-old brain. I was born during World War II, the first child born to my mother, Grace. And since my father was away at the war, I was the sole target of all my mother's attention and affection. By the age of seven, though, my father was back and I had two younger sisters. My mother's singular bonding with me was by then well-divided, and as a result, I'd become withdrawn, even jealous and depressed. I'm not sure that was a motivation, but when I was seven and a half, not knowing how to swim, I waded too far into a small New Jersey lake. The slope fell off sharply, and I slipped off the edge into deep water. I came up once, let out a scream of fear that emptied my lungs, and then sank slowly to the bottom. When my lungs filled with water, my soul, my consciousness, left my body, and rose into a nearby birch tree, and from there I could see my mother in her red dress running out of the cottage and down to the shore to jump in, dive down to my body, and pull me up. She dragged me to the shore, threw me face down with a log under my chest, and pushed on my back to try to get the water out of my lungs. In the process, she more or less invented CPR, although it was an upside-down version, since the log did chest compressions each time she pushed. I saw a light I could go into, but no angel was there to tell me what to do. Instead, my soul was touched, 
and overwhelmed by the realization of how much my mother really did love me, and even more than that, how she actually was a channel for the love of God that I suddenly felt myself totally submerged in. At that point, I recognized how foolish my childish insecurities had been, and I knew I had to go back into my body. Now, there's a dream or series of dreams connected with this story. For years afterward, while growing up, I had this recurring dream that I was falling away from the light down a dark tunnel. I thought it was a memory of my sinking to the bottom of the lake, that the light was the sun on the surface, and that the darkness was water too deep for the light. That's how my brain was trying to reconcile other, perhaps simultaneous events from the other side into the narrative structure that just wouldn't fit the story my sequential-based brain wanted to tell. These dreams haunted me, and, and years later, as a result of my, as an adult in my 20s, I returned to the lake and dove down just to see if my dream's image reflected the reality of sunlight under the water. And I was surprised to find it did not. In reality, the sun's sunlight spread uniformly across the surface of the lake, and all the way to the bottom there was no tunnel effect at all. It was not until years after that, in first reading about near-death experiences, that I reconciled the tunnel and the light descriptions I was reading about into a memory of the light I was falling from as I went back into my body. And yet, at the same time, I was up in a tree. What kind of a storyline was that? Near-death experiences typically are personalized, and as far as I can remember, mine was too. While my dreams suggested I traveled further into the light than my perch in the birch tree, my brain refused to remember that part of the experience. What I do know is the extent to which the event reassured and changed my perception of my life, primarily by removing my fear of no longer being loved by my mother, more important to me at that time than any questions about death and time. Moreover, it fired my natural curiosity about life into a full-on drive to learn and experience more. First of all, I decided not to tell my mother what I had seen. I had felt her anxiety viscerally as she pumped on my body to get my heart going. Her pain at that moment precluded any consideration on my part of leaving her. And while my NDE was reassuring to me, I sensed that confirming to her that I died would devastate my mom. And if I wasn't going to tell her about my NDE, I, I certainly wasn't telling anyone else. In fact, it was decades before I told anyone about my experience. My mom surely noted, though, how my behavior changed after the drowning. I'd been a very ordinary kid with school by day and our small screen black and white Dumont TV by night. Like most kids, I thrived on simple storylines. I'd grown up with on tales about Christopher Robin, Eeyore, and Winnie the Pooh by A.A. Milne. But after that, I was on to our newly acquired story machine, the TV, with its Howdy Doody show and Kukla Fran and Ollie, both puppet shows with familiar characters that appeared right on cue, and the more adventurous Hopalong Cassidy and Captain Video, relating more dramatic adventures. But now, not long after experiencing my NDE, I found myself fascinated with the night sky, and I was a sponge to find out more. My favorite birthday treat was a trip to the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, and I prevailed on my mom to get me a reflecting telescope. On clear nights, instead of watching TV, I could be found out in the backyard checking on the Pleiades, Jupiter, Mars, and the craters of the moon. Finally, in a burst of inspiration, I took over an empty attic room and turned it into my own planetarium. I hit the local appliance store for refrigerator cartons to build a skyline around the edges of the room with lights wired to my electric train transformer to create the changing sunsets and sunrise. A relatively accurate model star projector from the Hayden Planetarium gift shop provided the stars, and I would write scripts, story adventures, in fact, for shows about supernova explosions, comets, devastating meteor strikes, the Big Bang creation, and how the Earth might end. My mom was my main audience. She would come up to the attic, patiently stretch out on a mattress on the floor, and humor my involvement with tales about the heavens projected on our attic ceiling. 
My NDE affected other ways I thought as well. My Catholic Sunday school classmates were amused by the ruler wax to the back of my hand from a nun regularly displeased with, by my failure to memorize the catechism lesson for the week. The questions were interesting. Why did God make me? But the answers, God made me to show his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven, fell flat from my way of thinking. It was a dead-end narrative, just uh, not, uh, not anywhere near my new way of thinking about these things. If anything, though, my NDE seemed to have fired my natural curiosity to an active passion to explore the other. My parents decided to send me to a boarding school near Pittsburgh, attended by privileged boys headed for Ivy League colleges and careers in law and medicine. I wanted no part of the careers they aspired to and refused to compete for grades. In the dorm at night, instead of homework, I practiced learning tunes like green sleeves on the recorder. And since I was usually wearing my bright yellow terry cloth back bathrobe, I contracted the nickname Canary. I was not a good student, but I did find workarounds. For example, I got a passing grade in high school chemistry, not by learning chemistry, but by creating a narrative based on John Hershey's book about our nuking Hiroshima to end World War II. I told the story to the class with such conviction that some were moved to tears and the sequential storyline construct we're so addicted to got me that passing grade. Fortunately, I had two close friends there who thought as I did, and we would sneak off campus at night, push rolling the VW bug down the driveway before starting the motor. We'd head to the Hill District, Pittsburgh's Harlem, to hang out at the African-American bars that featured world-class live jazz and underage drinking. My counterculture rebellion took place on campus as well when I wrote a satire about the school. My roommate and I broke into the mimeograph room that night, made enough copies for all the students, and slipped a copy into each of the hymnals just before morning chapel. We were lucky to get only a week's suspension for our crime. It wasn't my grades, but an 800 on my college boards that got me accepted into Columbia University. So right after high school graduation, I caught a bus to New York City and with 50 bucks in my pocket found a job at a sweatshop in the city's garment district, pulling orders and pushing racks. I moved into the Chelsea Hotel, which was going through a social transition from beatniks to hippies, and spent uh, my nights hanging out in coffee houses in Greenwich Village. When fall came, my businessman father insisted I major in economics but I spent most of my class time with humanities, a music survey class where I only listened to Gregorian chant, and several classes on Eastern studies, especially on Buddhism and Tao. For science, of course, I took astronomy, although Columbia's observatory was obscured by New York's light pollution. Nevertheless, I credit my renegade behavior, this direction in my life, to the security afforded by my NDE. For example, my night job was as a Burns guard assigned to fill in at locations new to me every night they called. I was given a uniform and a tool to clock in at each station I patrolled, but no weapon, although I was often in dangerous situations outside of factories and on the waterfront in places I'd never been before. But usually it didn't faze me. After all, the Puerto Rican neighborhood we lived in often had drive-by shootings of its own. And occasionally, for fun, I'd strap my infant son to me and we'd motorcycle the loop road through Central Park. Foolhardy courage, graciously provided by my NDE, but obviously nothing heroic about it. After graduation, my dad wanted me to stay at Columbia to earn an MBA. I took one semester at business school, but envisioned the ironic phrase, Arbeit macht frei, above the gate and dropped out to go to work for the New York Department of Welfare as a caseworker in West Harlem. My vehicle was famous there, a 1951 Buick hearse with red velvet curtains and a white racing stripe up the back and over the roof. My caseload clients were black, elderly, poor, and sick, who in those pre-Medicaid days needed the city's support to pay their hospital bills. These folks had nothing to their name but poverty and pain, and yet they were the kindest, most generous, and loving group of people I had ever met. 
It was an eye-opening education in my life and helped me set a direction I also attribute to the urgings of my NDE. Done with school, married, and with our baby boy, Matthew, my wife and I decided to save every nickel, and eventually we put together the $2,500 needed to buy a VW camper from the factory in Germany. Matthew was three when we took a coal freighter to Germany, picked up the camper, and on $5 a day traveled around Europe and the Middle East for nearly a year. We were most interested in visiting pagan and Christian religious sites, cathedrals, crusader castles, mosques, and Greek and Roman temples in Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel. On the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, we felt we'd traveled as far as we needed. When we stood shoeless in the Dome of the Rock, I was holding my three-year-old son in my arms as we gazed down on the rock itself, Abraham's altar. It's the altar rock on which Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his precious son, and over which Muslims built the Dome of the Rock to honor that rock some 3,000 years later. Our parents thought we were crazy to attempt months of side road camping with a three-year-old, especially in Middle Eastern countries, and perhaps we were. But again, I blame that desire to see and learn as much as I could, as fast as I could, on the lingering and probably selfish influences from my NDE. And decisions of that sort continued to pile up. Back home, I gave up a secure, good-paying publishing job in Philadelphia to move to an overgrown, long-abandoned farm in coastal Maine. We restored a farmhouse that had sat empty for decades without plumbing or heat, cleared land for a garden, and opened a roadside vegetable stand. Along with that, we helped start an organic farming and gardening magazine for Maine called Farmstead Magazine. And when we ran out of money, I started a real estate office and eventually took over editing the local weekly paper, The Castine Patriot, where I wrote critical editorials that seemed to upset our advertisers. Every decision was an out-on-a-limb one, but I hardly ever worried about failing. I volunteered to help start a, no a local ambulance corps and served on it as an EMT for eight years. And it was here, I think, some 30 years after my NDE that I began to mature spiritually because I began to share the story of my experience. It took more years, however, before I decided to study ministry at Bangor Theological Seminary. After graduating, I went to work as a chaplain at a major Bangor hospital. I sold my old real estate office to buy an abandoned church building in downtown Bangor, restored it as a church theater, and along with pastoring Sunday services, we produced annual passion plays along with other spirit-themed plays written and directed by my second wife, Charlene. Anyone who wanted to act could be in our plays, and yet they were remarkably authentic in their acting. It turns out that typecasting solves everything. Charlene would write the plays to fit the actors. Today it now serves, the church uh, serves as a homeless shelter as well as a church with a dinner most days for those in need. I worked as a chaplain for 15 years, truly the best job of my life. And here's where I learned to fully share my NDE story and others as tools for hope and healing. In fact, during that time, I was working on my seminary doctorate in NDE studies with a specific goal of using NDE stories as teaching and healing tools for my hospital patients. And today, of course, I do the podcast uh, that you're listening to, NDE Radio, and the YouTube channel archive of 400-plus shows. By now, I've told you more than you probably wanted to know about my life, but I have a reason for this recitation. We recently watched a movie titled Reminiscence, in which the woman asked the man, tell me a story with a happy ending. He tells her, no story has a happy ending, but you can tell a story with a happy beginning and stop before you reach the end. He then tells her the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, a classic love story in which the heroic Orpheus uses his gift of music to win her back to life, only to lose her by a weakness of faith in the end. End the story before the tragic end, and you have a happy tale. But God is not so cynical about the possibility of happy endings. You just have to take the story's end beyond human death to the heavenly ever after. 
But why is the timeline structure that makes stories possible so different from that of heaven? Why did God make it that way? Elie Wiesel observed, God made man because he loves stories. Jesus loved stories too, since much of his teaching was delivered by parable. But stories are our indication that we are gripped in this life by the jaws of time. Stories, even reminiscences, are understood in sequential terms. If God loves stories, he must also love the flow of time, and in fact, must have created it so stories could be possible. Our life is a story, and those who believe in reincarnation know it's a series of stories for us, although Anita Morjani might add that all our lives are being experienced simultaneously. And how can that be, our brains scream at us? I suppose it depends on where you're watching from, taking God and the angels into account. Still, end-ear reports of life reviews are usually described by the end-ear as a movie, which suggests a story-like rapid-fire but nevertheless sequential presentation. Raymond Moody was in my neck of the woods this past summer, lecturing with great charm and wisdom at the historic spiritualist camp in Etna, Etna, Maine. I spent some time picking his brain on his fascination with our inability to articulate the near-death experience in understandable terms. Anyone who has had an NDE knows how frustrating it can be to tell the story of what we saw, heard, smelled, learned, because all those terms are related to our 3D lives in the material world. Dr. Moody loves storytelling and tells tall tales at the drop of a hat. In fact, we plan to dedicate an NDE radio show to some of Raymond's flights of fancy. Being the same age, we reminisced uh, about growing up with the radio, with Gene Autry, The Shadow, and what power uh, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds had on the radio audiences of an even earlier day. The world is our theater, and we're playing our roles in the play. It may be improv rather than scripted, and we may call that improv free will, but we are committed to a framework of story patterns that even Plato referenced in the Phaedo. Reincarnating into different lives offers us different stories to play, and if we get to play rich and poor, male and female, kind and greedy, sick and well, slave and master, then perhaps that's where free will becomes possible in the collective of reincarnation. Each life alone limits the range of possibilities by the framework our stories impose on us. I have to think that our stories are like going to school before we go out to live on our own. We learn sequentially from stories, but if we call the other side the real world, then they are beyond sequence, beyond time. Nevertheless, we hope for ourselves our stories are the stories God loves to hear about, since the sum total of our stories determine how well we've mastered the language of love, God's language, if you will, to prepare us for the real world of eternity. We will only be compatible with God when we've begun to learn to speak his language on this side of the veil. That's what our stories demonstrate and whether we're coming to a happy ending or not. But of all the stories one can hear, reports of near-death experiences are for me the most fascinating. In my 15 years as a hospital chaplain, in my research for my doctoral thesis on NDEs, and now with NDE Radio, I've heard stories of thousands of NDE and other spiritually transformative experiences, and never seem to tire of it. Still, I always know I'm hearing the story in translation, because no one knows how to talk 5D in a three-dimensional world, at least not yet. Dr. Moody says we need a nonsense language to communicate it, and he cites Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky from Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there. That goes briefly, "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogroves, and the momraths outgrabe." Still, even nonsense language is sequ sequential, so on this side of the veil, our words seem trapped in the plodding footsteps of time. One of the first STEs I heard about, other than my own, was a friend who told me of a grand mal seizure she had, that when her brain was fried by electricity for just a few seconds, she suddenly had the answers to every question she had ever asked. 
Of course, when she came back, the answers were no longer available to her. We have to break the framework our 3D brain locks us into. Zen koans are one exercise, such as what is the sound of one hand clapping. Raymond told the story of how Abraham Lincoln was once seated on a horse when the horse suddenly got its foot caught in the stirrup of the saddle. Without missing a beat, Lincoln said to the horse, Well, if you're getting on, I'm getting off. It's a humorous image that overcomes the rational as powerfully as any Buddhist koan. There are occasions for replacing rational language, such as glossolalia or speaking in tongues. Google that in Wikipedia and you'll find an icon depicting the Theotokos, together with the apostles, filled with the Holy Spirit, pictured by cloven tongues like as of fire above their heads. Speaking in tongues is a practice in which people utter words or speech-like sounds, often thought by believers to be languages unknown to the speaker. One definition used by linguists is the fluid vocalizing of speech-like syllables that lack any readily comprehended meaning, in some cases as part of religious practice in which some believe it to be a divine language unknown to the speaker. Glossolalia is practiced in Pentecostal and Charismatic Christianity, as well as in some other religions. The philosopher William James uh, noted that there are no words in our common language to express the ineffable of a mystical experience like an NDE. NDEs are travel narratives, and in that sense, they fit the hero's journey. If, and it's a big if, when the soul returns to the body, the person then uses the gift to help enlighten the world. Let's look again at Campbell's definition as applied to the nde An nde ventures forth from the world of common day into a, relig- into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The nde comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Now, the victory in this story is the love of God, the greatest victory of all. The power to bestow boons comes from the NDEer telling what he or she saw in sharing their vision, their gift from God with the world. Complete the assignment, and the story has a happy ending for everyone concerned. So the search for ways to tell these stories is not some frivolous undertaking, but the job every NDE hero takes on in the effort to help communicate critical mystical events. That's why the first listeners, be they family, friends, medical or religious personnel, must be both non-judgmental and completely respectful. After all, they are in the presence of a person beloved of God. No one, no matter what their personal beliefs, has the right to tread on that. I have long argued that religion and science, since they both aspire to the truth, should ultimately come to the same conclusions. Science has an edge these days in communicating the ordinary, ordinarily incomprehensible in that it utilizes math and fuzzy logic and quantum as the nonsense language is capable of making sense, at least to the initiated. And here's where quantum as a study may pierce the veil in a way that will ultimately be comprehensible in human language, although it may require a reconfiguration of how the brain grocks the mind. It's possible that supernatural and science fiction stories themselves are already stretching our imaginations in ways that enable the communication tools we seek. One favorite example is the Matrix movies, where our lives are portrayed as a dream from which we must awake. Science fiction has been particularly effective in storylines about time as a malleable dimension. Some break through the unimaginable to suddenly become imaginable to those who try. And the huge growth in the demand for near-death and other spiritually transformative experiences is moving heroism closer as well. Thus, the sharing of NDEs may now be making new heroes every day of those who bravely share. And a new, higher level in the maturity of spiritual understanding may be materializing as a result. For example, I'm noticing listener comments on the NDE Radio with Lee Whitting YouTube channel seem to be to become more insightful every day. Here are two fine examples. Existence is love. I love that one. 
And also, if you travel at the speed of light, time stops. Of course, stopping time is another way to understand eternity. In a January 2021 interview for Brain World, written by Diane Price, the physicist William Tiller stated in scientific terms a framework for his understanding of bodies and souls. He said, quote, We are humans having a physical experience, and we ride the river of life together. The personality self is our bio-body suit. Our souls come into that bio-body suit at the beginning of physical life. There are two layers to the bio-body suit. One is the electric atom-molecule layer, and the second is the magnetic information wave layer, the layer which exists in the physical vacuum. That layer comes first. It is thought to become the template upon which the electric atom-molecule embryo of the beginning baby is born. Because it's faster than light, you can see the inner layer You can't, rather, you can't see the inner layer, so people don't realize it's there. End quote. And in back-to-back shows of September 18th and 25th and 2017 on NDE Radio, Valerie Varan speculated that all is light, light moves energy and information through space, and light is holographic. Therefore, every one of us has access to the whole. The particle-wave dual nature of light is analogous to the physical-spiritual nature of humanity. She points out our eyes see only a tiny portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, but we have to consider the full bandwidth of light to see the possibilities. In noting the possible, possibly parallel wisdom of Scripture, Varan sees Joseph's coat of many colors, a blessing from his father, as perhaps a heightening of his aura, and Jacob's ladder as a measure of how the levels of energy and frequency slow as you come down to the material world. Healing frequency occupies the top of the ladder to quicken and unify. We don't know what to call it, so we call this unifying experience love, in which our ego dissolves into the collective, the holographic resonance. Where two or more gathered, it heightens the amplitude, lifting us from our particle nature toward our wave nature. Love is the intersection between time and space, between the vertical and horizontal, the story symbol of the cross, the meeting, the unity point. In the terminology of physics, evil could be defined as ignorance, the particle side of light that represents separateness. In frequency, it's the red, too far from the violet to perceive God's vibration. In separateness, we start to fear. When we're together, we resonate higher. And coherence is where resonance combines. Varan reasons that in the entangled state, we are beyond separation. We are in the now because the rule of space, because beyond the rule, beyond the rule of space and time. Putting quantum into religious references is chancy, perhaps even nonsensical. But if so, perhaps it begins to approximate the unifying crossover language we've been seeking. So at this point, let's review what where we've been going. One, God's Spirit created the dimension of time to make the physical possible. Two, God's Spirit did this to make stories, the human story, among others, possible. Three, we think in sequence, in story time. On the other side, it's all in degrees of now. Four, NDEers validate their return to life by heroic sharing of their experience with the world. 5. God's Spirit manifests to us as a loving, conscious light, and within the speed of light, time stands still, which equals eternity. 6. As speed frequency increases, time slows down. High frequency means now goes slow in heaven. At the speed of light, time stops. 7. Forever, for all eternity, etc. simply means outside of the dimension of time. 8. When we merge with the light, time ends for us. And 9. In the end, God decides if we've demonstrated by how we've loved that we've chosen to be absorbed into the timeless light of love. The moral of the story 
for better or worse, is that an entire life can be influenced and eventually restructured around an event that might have taken less than a few minutes to go through. On my NDE radio podcast, I have archived interviews with hundreds of people who have had similar life-changing experiences as a result of an NDE or some other personal mystical event in their lives. Some authors who wrote the Bible received less otherworldly spiritual direction than some NDEers I've interviewed, and I am convinced God is still speaking to us. NDEs are a primary channel for that communication. That's another reason why it's imperative these experiences get the support they need to tell their stories from chaplains, uh, medical staff, and of course, from their families and loved ones as well. Now, in the minutes remaining, I hope to heighten your understanding of why near-death and other spiritually transformative experiences exist and why they impose a moral duty on those of us who receive those blessings in our lives. It's when we accept that moral duty that NDEers and those who tell their stories have the capacity to turn personal gifts from God into acts of heroism. There's a famous Gallup poll from several years ago estimating that nearly 800 NDEs occur in the United States every day. With the greater refinements in CPR, it's no great stretch to jump that number to 1,000 a day, just in America alone. Well, think of it, 1,000 near-death experiences a day, 7,000 a week, 30,000 a month, 365,000 NDEs a year, and each one a human being with revelations of eternity with the revelations of the existence of the light we alternatively call consciousness, spirit, eternal light, and the love that is God. Now assume that each one of those blessed events is coupled with the stories we bring back to mundane earth, stories of deceased family we have met, stories of angels and sometimes demons, stories of eternal life in a paradise so holy, so uncorrupted that even the grass sings out the praises of the creation for our Creator, for the conscious love that made all of this possible. These stories are so moving because they are true. And truth, as Plato said, is the only thing that matters, the only thing that's eternal. So do the numbers. If 365,000 Americans a year tell just two people about what they saw on the other side, that's more than a million people in this country alone who get a part of the big picture we like to call realer than real. And if those NDE-inspired experiencers and hearers expand their stories to yet more people anxious and willing to hear the truth, then by geometric progression alone, we can turn the behavioral direction of this country from its focus on greed and ego and exploitation and lying to one of love and kindness, compassion and truth. Yes, the intrinsic stuff that lasts because it's eternally in keeping with the nature of love. From my life's reflection on the NDE I experienced at seven, to my work as an ambulance EMT, to my seminary studies and near-death experience, to my 15 years as a chaplain in a major hospital, to my work on Ion's Vital Signs, to my assembling more than 400 recorded interviews for NDE Radio, I'm here to tell you today that we can change things for the better because we are a huge army empowered with a gift from the light that people are literally dying to hear about and to to hear about and to understand. Just a short time we could heal the planet and each other with the compassion and love that all religions give lip service to, but often fail to inspire in their congregations because of denominational self-interest or classism or sexism or racism all those isms that become meaningless in the face of truth, in the face of the eternal, in the face of universal love. I called my Ian's talk that this talk is based on the chaplain as hero for a number of reasons. First, because compassionate chaplains bridge all religious designations to be a spokesman for God's forgiveness and love. Chaplains are found in prisons and hospitals, branches of the military, even in Congress. They're there to listen, to comfort, to bring understanding, to help with the transition from this life to the next for the sick and dying, and for their families and friends. But in fact, chaplain is just the designation for 
what all of us are meant to be doing for one another. Another name for chaplain should be human being. Just another man, woman, or child here to do what we were born here to do. That is, comfort ye my people. What do official chaplains have that others do not? In The Wizard of Oz, the great and glorious Oz presents the cowardly lion with a medal marked Courage, an official designation to prove the lion is no coward after all. It's only his own insecurities that stand in the way. Well, think about it. That's all that the chaplain designation is there to do, to make us brave enough to listen to others with our hearts as well as our ears. If a medal can empower cowards, think how much more empowered is someone who has crossed over, witnessed choirs of angels, perhaps Jesus himself, or even stepped into the light of pure love we call God, for want of a purer name. If that don't bring you courage and ears, I don't know what will. What Campbell described as heroic is the assignment we were sent here to accomplish, the reason we are all here on earth. Campbell was looking at it as the basis for stories as truth, but in the process reduced it to the level of psychological resonance. In the foreword to the 1949 edition, Campbell quotes the Vedas, quote, in the sense of human mutual understanding, unquote. As we're told in the Vedas, Campbell wrote, the truth is one, the sages speak of it by many names. But setting the underlying monomyth of stories aside, I look upon it as the literal motivation for our existence. I can make such a bold statement because I can offer as conclusive evidence the reality of NDEs. Let's look at it again. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into the region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man and woman, of course. So let's take a moment to unravel this phrase. The hero is the in the story of the NDE is the experiencer. Could be you, could be me, could be anyone that has that has been given that gift. But what makes him or her him or her a hero? Well, in John chapter thirteen, verses thirteen and fourteen, Jesus told his disciples, "My command is this: Love each other as I have loved you." Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, a near-death experiencer usually dies, but not necessarily for his friends. He or she suffers death through an accident, perhaps, or disease, but not usually as a sacrifice for someone else. But wait. If it turns out you left your body for a reason, to recognize the perspective of eternity, or even to learn how to love the light and one another, then retroactively I say you have died for love. What you do when you return to your body determines if you deserve the designation hero in your friend's eyes, but in terms of the light, you already are a hero. A decisive victory is won because you have recognized truth and all that implies. You have witnessed the essence of reality. Now you are back in your body. What do you do? Do you witness to others, to the doctors and nurses and chaplains, to your pastor, priest, relatives and friends, and to the world at large, that you have touched, seen, experienced, comprehended, grokked the deep meaning of what Jesus has said? I have told you this, that my joy in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you said Jesus. When I was a staff chaplain, I sought out those who had coded and been resuscitated. If only 10% of them had anything to report from the other side, that was a good day. So how come 90% remembered nothing at the moment when their hearts stopped beating, their blood stopped flowing, their breath was put on pause? Well, I don't know for sure, but I think I have a hunch that it's because their soul refused for whatever reason to exit their body and move toward the light. It just wasn't ready, like the worm in its cocoon, to emerge before its time. And that's understandable. 
That's where most who die usually are. It might take minutes to emerge from the body. Sometimes when we die for real, it may take hours, days, or even years to give up Earth's ghostly realm and fly into the light. We are all on our own time clock, and we punch out when we get to it, when we can. So not everyone whose heart stops has an NDE. But so what? Does that disqualify them as heroes in the light? Well, I sure hope not, because that's where most of us are. But if we don't leave our bodies, what chance is there to learn the truth? Well, some seem to be born with God's love in their hearts. It just comes naturally to them, and they are usually adored in return. Many others learn through religious practice to overcome ego and care for the other. The rest of us, for the most part, love our relatives and friends and do what we can for them. But almost all of us are born with an innate curiosity to relearn the truth that we came from, the desire to know the big picture and what it's all about in this world. We have a residual memory of the place we knew before conception, before we chose our parents and negotiated our lives to come. We long to remember more of that, to have at least a subconscious anchor to the truth, even as we go our selfish ways. And because of that, something in the near-death stories we hear about, read about, or see in the movies speaks to us as nothing else can. A part of us, at least, yearns to be a hero of the light in service to the God of love. In short, we don't need a personally transformative experience involving our death to become a hero to the light. All we need is a clue, whether it comes from a change of career, a chance encounter, or even picking up the right book or finding the right YouTube channel to crack open the doors of perception. In my years as a hospital chaplain, I heard stories, and incredible stories, of visits to the other side, told to me from resuscitated patients who, till that day, had lived very material lives. Some had attended church each week, but most had not. Some were avowed atheists, and many described themselves, if the chaplain asked, as not religious, but spiritual. One example I often use was a 60-year-old woman who'd survived cardiac arrest. When I asked my usual question to those who'd coded, did you see anything while you were on the other side? Her face brightened, and she exclaimed, yes, in an excited voice. I, I saw my father, who died three years ago. He looked like I remember him when I was a child, and I was so happy to see him. And behind him, I could see the most beautiful light I had ever seen. I wanted to run to it, but he told me I had to go back. Suddenly, I was a child again, trying to run around him, but he caught me, picked me up. He told me he loved me, but that I had to go back. And then I was back in my body. But I know now we don't die, and that I'll see my dad again soon. Now, I remember this story not so much because it was the most amazing ND account ever, it wasn't, but for what it accomplished after that. I asked the woman if I had her permission to share her story without using her name, of course, and she said yes, oh yes, with such enthusiasm that it became one of my default stories for others to hear. The very next patient I visited was a stage four cancer patient who'd just been told by his doctor, there's nothing more we can do for you. The man was in despair, staring down a dark tunnel to nowhere until I said, let me tell you a story I just heard from a patient who coded today. I can't tell you how powerful a change that woman's story made in that patient's life to the very end of his days. To me, the woman who told her story to me, a stranger, and then told me to share it, was and is the hero Campbell describes when he said, a hero ventures forth from this world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. She died into a visit with her restored father and saw the light of God. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. She does her best to plunge into the light, but is told by her father she has to settle for his love for now. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on others. She has brought many of my patients from despair to hope by giving me her story to tell. If that doesn't fit the description of hero, I don't know what does. Look, heroism comes not from the trip, but what you do with it once you get back. 
And in fact, you don't even need to die to be a hero to others. All you need is to arm yourself with the NDE stories people need to hear. Arm yourself like Michael the Archangel with his sword of truth. Use it with the power of your own belief, and you can remove mountains of despair and others with an end-of-year promise of hope. As an ambulance EMT and then as a hospital chaplain, I was uniquely placed to make maximum use of the NDEs I was told. It was easy for me to use NDEs as a source of hope in many, many visits. In the eight years of doing NDE radio, first on TalkZone and related podcasts, and now additionally through our YouTube channel, it's safe to say our NDE interviews have reached millions of listeners around the world. Recently, we've expanded into social media through Facebook, while other opportunities seem to emerge every day. NDE Radio's associate producer, Lilia Samoilo, has brought many NDE Radio guests to a book series being produced by Guidepost. Guidepost is, of course, a traditionally Christian publisher that has recently recognized the healing power of near-death experience stories, stories about the love of God that await us when we die. Each experiencer gets interviewed by a guidepost writer dedicated to telling the story of their lives, and guideposts reaches millions as well. But the numbers are meaningless unless unless these stories really open the eyes and hearts of those who hear them. Recently, we opened our NDE Radio YouTube channel to comments. Feedback has been positive for the most part, and in some cases revealed changes of heart for the better. Occasionally, of course, we get trolled by fundamental Christians under the sway of pastors who think NDEs are the work of the devil. That's because NDEs, by promoting God's love, can make heroes of anyone. That's why those pastors who want to keep control of things discourage their people from personal relationships with God. As Jesus himself discovered, religious authorities too often prefer the rule of law to the rule of love, because they think the law is the source of their authority. In fact, the reverse is true. If only they would give love a chance. Where do we go from here, and what's the urgency? Well, stop and think for a moment. In my lifetime, more than 50% of the world's wildlife has disappeared. In my lifetime, global warming has raised the temperature sufficient to melt the ice shelves and glaciers and free underwater methane pools enough to poison our air. Flooding in some areas strike even at the heart of Europe, while our west coast burns and our southwest turns to desert from drought and deforestation. In half my lifetime, Human fertility has been cut in half by human pollutants, and diseases like cancer caused by inflammation are thriving as our antibodies are, antibiotics rather are reaching their end. The oceans and the fish are full of plastics and chemical waste. Our food supplies are full of cancer-causing Roundup, and the politicians are at each other's throats while religious fundamentalists are looking for Armageddon. People look at the work necessary to heal things and throw up their hands. Why not just invite the end of the world, they think, and then we can all fly off to Eden where everything is perfect and God loves everyone. Why should we go out on a limb to be the spiritual warriors this earthly disaster is needing? NDEs, however, are more and more calling on us to live up to our spiritual responsibilities. For example, on this uh, July 12th edition of NDE Radio, NDE-er Jim Woodford described at the end of the tunnel he traveled through when he died, he was confronted with a choice between heaven and hell. In this, in, in this, uh, in the interview, I called it an unusual and theologically significant part of his story, the dividing line between heaven and hell. Jim described the entrance to hell as ground sloping down to a steep crevasse with black coal-like walls. The screeching sound of hell's gates evoked in him a soul-shattering terror, and roiling black clouds emitted an awful smell, the stench of death and hopelessness, he called it. And then from the damp chill came a creature of gruesome description. It was coming up from the pit for him. Its eyes were like burning coals focused on him, Saliva dripping from its fangs, there were whispers from the darkness calling his name, and a hissing quality inviting Jim into the pit. Jim, quick, 
come with us, they cried, as a sharp scrape of talon or claw ripped down the back of his shoulder. Earlier he had prayed, God forgive me. Now in terror he cried out, God help me. And with that the light brightened, and the darkness retreated, and the voices stopped. On his own he was helpless, he was powerless, outside of God's forgiveness. The Tibetan Book of the Dead describes similar monsters. The Buddhist monks say they are of our own making. And if we are our own judge, then we may well think we belong in the pit, because unforgiven by love, we do. A hell of our own making? Yes, but those who believe they have an interceder in the light see the possibility of unwarranted forgiveness. The spark of God in each of us has the heroic impulse to call on our loving creator from out of the depths we've created. Yes, we have the free will necessary to destroy our planet and ourselves, but understand, as Michael, the angel, the archangel, told a visionary we interviewed recently, it's time for humanity to lower the sword and raise the heart. We have the free will to choose that path, but I'm not so naive as to think we can or will do it without help from the other side. Now, like no other time in history, we need the heroes of God's love to come and take part in healing the world. And that's what the NDE stories are all about. They are the medicine we need to bring hope and truth to this suffering world. Just as the doctors, nurses, and aides have been called heroes during this recent pandemic of COVID-19, We need spiritual heroes out on the front lines, channeling God's love to those most in need of it. Do that, and you will come with clean hands to the final judgment of our capacity to love, as described by Jesus in Matthew 25, 31-40, the story of the sheep and the goats. And it goes like this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Let me close with a quote from Valerie Varan's book, The Essence of Love. She writes, Pure love is an energy so strong it builds universes out of its vibration an energy so complex it can only be described multidimensionally, holographically, transforming visible universe into unseen multiverse with its song and falling back again in a gyration of rhythmic breath. The energy of expansion and creativity that streams through all things and glues us together in oneness. The sun to the moon, the source of light on high casting a swirling net of shadows below the quantum field of consciousness itself, born of spirit infused into matter, quickening life out of apparent nothingness, bringing awareness into being and subjectivity into objectivity. A spectrum of synchronistic collective activity and movement, perceived or not, streaming through every form and structure in some diluted fashion, unconditional, unyielding, unlimited. thanks for listening. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 400 archived NDE interviews, 
Go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or subscribe to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can listen and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to like, follow, and share our new NDE Radio Facebook page and discover our Facebook group and links to our YouTube channel while you're there. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.